Morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So for those that don't know, I'm Stan Mitchell, and Austin New Church feels like home to me. I have three or four churches across the country that I try to tune into every week, and Austin New Church, along with my home church, Grace Point, back in Nashville, that I helped start 20 years ago. Austin New Church is, is uh, my go-to, so I think I know you guys better than you know me, but this is, what, the third time that I've been here? But in, in my heart, I've been here a lot more often than that as I gather with you guys weekly. Um, today, what are we going to talk about? Well, let, let me jump in this way. This is a, a, very, a deeply personal message to me. What I'm going to share with you guys today um, is less of a sermon, and it's more of a, it's more of a, a life model, um, a mantra for me. What I'm going to share is essentially the foundation, ideologically, philosophically, of what I was thinking 20 years ago when I helped start this church in Nashville called Grace Point that has been one of the kind of post-evangelical, uh, inclusive churches along the way that has done our best to lead, and, and uh, we've done that in fits and starts, but it's a beautiful place, still going on today. A young man named Josh Scott, young man that I've been friends with for years, has now taken the role. I'm founding pastor, Pastor Emeritus. That means I get to go kind of like the Queen of England, lots of glory, but no responsibility. Just sit back at the back, and anytime I meet someone that's new and hasn't heard the story and doesn't know me, I say, sit down, let me tell you how this church started, and I talk about myself. No, that's not... But Grace Point's a lovely place, and Austin New Church is certainly in that vein. But I think you'll resonate with what I'm about to tell you. It started for me, in, in one sense, it started for me technically. This sermon started 20 years ago. I was um, at a big evangelical church in Nashville, and I was preparing my Easter sermon. And while I was preparing my Easter sermon, I got, I got distracted probably because I was bogged down, trying one more time to capture something about this special day for a group of people I'd preached too many times. But I noticed in the process of studying for that message that there were a lot of Marys in and around the story. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of Marys in the gospel narrative. And the thing that I, I noticed especially was that I couldn't keep them straight. And I, I, I could hear, I was telling Trey yesterday and the team this morning, I could hear the voice of my grandmother in my ears because I was one of those kids raised in sports and I knew everybody's stats, you know, batting averages and OPS and free throw percentages. And my grandmother would hear me rattling those things off and, and she would say, but can you name the 12 disciples? And so I still had that kind of feeling of here I've been preaching 15, 20 years and I don't know who the Marys are in the New Testament. So I... Uh, bogged down in the sermon, I dispatched the message, and I pulled out a piece of paper, I'll never forget, and I started slogging through the Marys of the New Testament. Across the top, I listed the different Marys, and then along the side of the page, the nomenclature was their biblical reference, and so I, I listed. And I found out, as the biblical scholars among us already know, that there are six Marys in the New Testament. Mary, the mother of Jesus, obviously. And then there's the woman, Mary Magdalene, who was possessed of demons and was deeply devoted to Jesus. And then there's this obscure woman, Mary, the wife of Clopas. 
Um, Trey, I think about your Aunt Clotine. Clopas must have been in that family from Alabama. Clopas and Clotine and Cletus. And so Mary, the wife of Clopas and cousin of Clotine and Cletus. Now, this Mary, you may not know her, but you do know her because she's mentioned twice. She was with the previous two Marys, the mother and Mary Magdalene, at the cross. And she was one of the women with Mary Magdalene at the resurrection. So that's pretty auspicious stuff. The fourth is a really obscure one that's simply called Mary, the mother of Mark. And we don't know. Maybe she was Mary, also the wife of Clopas, but Mary, the mother of Mark. And then the fifth one is not in the gospel narrative. It's mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, 6. There's this woman named Mary who is a servant of the church, and she's just a two on the Enneagram behind the scenes supporting everybody. I think they had the Enneagram back then, right? You, you know your number? Yep, yep. I'm a 14. Um, six Mary. Mary from Bethany. You remember her? She had a brother and a sister, older sister, Martha and Lazarus, right? For whatever reason, that afternoon as I was studying for the message and then got distracted into this Mary grid, I think it's divine. Honestly, I do. I haven't, I, I'm like Frederick Beekner. I, I grew up Pentecostal, five generations Pentecostal. My whole world was filled with people falling out, speaking in tongues and I was always the one, I always felt like Charlie Brown in that comic strip, being raised Pentecostal in the middle of all of that, a young preacher. Charlie Brown was in the comic strip with, I think it was Lucy, I know it was Lucy and maybe Linus or Pigpen, and they were staring up at the sky, and all of a sudden, Mary sits, or uh, Lucy sits straight up, and she's like, oh my, the clouds are spectacular today. Charlie Brown and Linus or whoever it was look on, and she describes, she says, look, Look, it's, it's, it's the Red Sea. The children of Israel are crossing. Oh, my, she says, the waters are crashing in on the Egyptian army. The next phrase, Linus sets up and he said, yes, the clouds are spectacular today. Look, he said, there's the, there's the hand of God touching the hand of man. It's the Sistine Chapel. The next phrase, it pans to Charlie Brown, and he has those, you know, those parentheses on the side of his eyes, and he's straining looking at the clouds. The next frame, Lucy looks at him indignantly with great self-righteousness and says, well, Charlie Brown, what do you see? The next frame, Charlie Brown whispers, well, I was going to say I saw a horsey and a ducky, but I think I'll keep it to myself now. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I always felt like in growing up in the Pentecostal church. I, I felt more like Frederick Buechner. I kept reaching my hand into the dark, trying to find the full embrace of the divine, that thing that others seem to find, that certain experience. And, and I, I never received that full embrace. But in retrospect now, I look back and know that from time to time, I did feel the brushing of fingertips. Or as Buechner said in another place, I've never had the malevolent or the beatific vision of Milton's paradise lost, but... From time to time, I swear I hear whispers from the wings of the stage. 
and looking back on my life, this is one of those three or four certain uncertain things. They're uncertain to the extent that you couldn't convince another person of the existence of God by them, but they're certain to the extent that it only takes two or three of them to just at least reflectively do something and settle your heart. And this was one of those experiences because on that grid, Mary of Bethany, and I don't think I'm retrofitting the memory here, I remember that day, Mary of Bethany, for no reason, standing out from the other five. And I also remember the scripture text. I can see it even in my hieroglyphic scribbling. I can see Luke 10, John 11, John 12, in the middle of all the other Marys and their references. And for whatever reason, again, the brushing of fingertips, I decided that I wanted to explore that. I didn't think it had anything to do with my Easter message, but I wanted to explore it for reasons unknown to me. And so I read the three passages, and this is what I found. I told the team this morning, I can't understand how a homiletician, you know, those who study preaching and teach preaching, I don't know how they've never seen this. It's such an underhanded setup. I've never heard anybody mention what I'm about to share with you. And yet it leapt from the page one more time, reassuring me that maybe the Bible's not the constitutional fixed thing that we've said it was, but it is incredibly sacred and has the capacity to speak across centuries and millennia in ways that no matter how strained my relationship has been with it, coming from literalism and fundamentalism, there is something about it that just continues to come to me and say there's a better way and there's still beauty here. This was one of those moments. First passage. Anybody raised around the church any length of time probably has memory of this story. Jesus comes to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, kind of an epicenter for him. Remember, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man has no place to lay his head to rest. In other words, he wasn't a homeowner. He didn't have a livelihood. He was dependent upon benefactors. This was tradition of Jewish rabbis and certainly Jewish prophets of lore. Jesus kind of filled that role. And so he had people positioned in Capernaum and Bethany and Bethsaida and around Galilee and Judea. He had people positioned who were benefactors. They brought him into their home, and their home was his, and they fed him, and they took care of him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, some historians say they were so close, they may have been cousins, they may have been blood kin. They were at least these benefactor kind of people who said, when you're passing through, this is your bed, this is your home. And the Bible said he was there one day. And if you read the story, I won't read it explicitly, if you read the story in Luke 10, it's pretty plain. Jesus comes in, he's sitting in the sitting area that we would call the living room. Martha, the older sister, remember what she's doing? She's in the kitchen cooking a meal. And the story says that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she was sitting at the feet of Jesus and she was, old King James, Shakespearean language, she was learning of him. He was teaching, and she was listening, and she was learning. Martha comes out of the kitchen, you remember? She comes out of the kitchen and hands on hips indignantly looks at Jesus and looks down at her sister condescendingly and says, I'm doing everything here. Could you get her 
to uh, get up from this silliness and come help me in the kitchen. Jesus looks at Martha and essentially says, leave her alone. And he says, Martha, you're distracted by so many things. She's actually doing the thing. The Greek there is kind of obscure, but he, he essentially says she's essentially doing not just the beautiful, noteworthy thing. She's doing the thing that's going to last here. So I put that story aside. And I noticed a few things about it reflectively. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. She's doing something that we still value in Christian history and that she's learning. Jesus is teaching her. She's affronted by someone that she loves dearly and who loves her dearly, someone really close to her, her sister, you know, excoriates her and says, you shouldn't be doing this, Jesus defends. So I, I go to the second, and I'm not going to share that with you un until the end. This is homiletics, because it really is the punchline of this whole thing. And it's the thing that has really shaped me. But let me jump to the third, the final time she's mentioned. It's John 12. It's six days before his crucifixion. I mean, this is Passion Week. It's an intense time filled with pathos and emotion. And the Bible says in John 12, uh, Matthew 26 also tells the story, Mark 14 tells the story, that in Bethany, Jesus is, is at a dinner. And it's not at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, but it's actually a celebration of Lazarus because a few weeks before, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And that's the previous chapter, John 11, that we're going to go to. So they've got a dinner at a guy's house. His name is Simon. He was a leper. He essentially had been healed by Jesus. And so this guy who had been healed by Jesus is throwing a big party celebrating another guy who had been healed, but really healed, raised from the dead. And the Bible says that they're at Simon the leper's house. All the disciples are at the table. Lazarus, the guest of honor, is sitting at the head of the table. Martha is serving. So she's doing what Martha does. And Mary, anybody remember what Mary does? She takes perfume in this lotion form, nard. She takes this expensive Tom Ford collection vanilla smoke perfume that costs a lot of money. You know, you have to finance it to get it. And she takes it, and wow. This is, Jason, when, you know, the preachery thing started going off for me. I didn't know how much it was going to impact me personally. But she's at the feet of Jesus. This time, she's doing what we would call worship, right? She's venerating him, honoring him. Guess what happens? Someone close to her, one of the disciples, stands up hands on hips, looks at her indignantly, looks at Jesus, scoffs, and says, make her quit doing this. It's ridiculous. She could have taken that money and sold it and done something for the poor, parentheses, not that he cared for the poor. Well, there's a lot of reasons to do stuff besides love. There's a lot of reasons to serve, do social action. There's a lot of a lot of reasons that we don't have to go into. 
a lot of reasons to say right-sounding things like that that have nothing to do with love or care. Paul even later said, you, you could give your body to be burned and it actually not be for love. It could be on an entirely different level of an economy of psychology has nothing to do with care and love. Jesus looks at Judas. I mean, this is so repetitive. Jesus looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. Back off. She's doing what she needs to be doing right now. As a matter of fact, Jesus says something that I don't think I don't know anybody has ever taken it that seriously. Jesus looks at her, and in either Matthew or Mark, one of the synoptics, it's not in John, but in Matthew, Matthew, I think Matthew and Mark, Jesus is recorded as saying, as a matter of fact, whenever you share my story, whenever you share the gospel, tell this story about her. You ever thought about that? The only thing he ever said to add to the gospel. That, I mean, that's, that's something to think about. All the big followers of Mary Magdalene these days, you know, that'll open a few chakras right there. Maybe there is something here. He says, you tell my story, death, burial, resurrection, life, all that. Tell that about her. First time, third time. At the feet of Jesus. Learning. Worshiping. Two things I think we value in the Christian church. We have entire wings of our church called educational space, right? We have entire industries, Christian book industries and, and, and workbooks and lessons, entire wings of denominations about education, right? I don't have to defend the fact that we value that. We, we create plenty of acreage at the feet of Jesus, a lot of square footage not just architecturally, but in our hearts and minds philosophically for Christian education. Is there anybody here that's going to take the position of Martha and say, shouldn't be doing that? No, we've got that straight. We heard Jesus defend it, and for 2,000 years, we have considered orthodoxy and doctrine and teaching and, and Sunday school. It's a big part of what we do. The last time, worshiping. It's a, it's a worship space. It's a worship service. Christian music is dominated right now, at least on the financial side of things, by worship music. Anybody here, anybody here want to take the position of Judas and say, you shouldn't be down there at the feet of Jesus with perfume, singing these songs? No, I think we've got that straight. We're not going to do the Martha. We're not going to do the Judas. Both times she's at the feet of Jesus. Both times she's doing something needful. Both times she's doing something that we value in our Christian ethic. Both times she's excoriated, rebuked, rebuffed by someone close to her. Not outsiders, insiders. Both times Jesus steps in and says, leave her alone. Now, that's enough right there. That's a good sermon series. But the second time is the time that I think we have to pay attention to. And I've been paying attention to it. It has shaped, it has shaped my life personally and everything I do vocationally. John 11, 
Jesus is in Perea, across the Jordan. He's not on the land, but he's lying low because things are politically hot in Judea. And he knows that if he steps across the Jordan anywhere in Judea, his, his card's going to be called. He is, he's deeply threatened at this point in his life and ministry. He knows it. His disciples know it. They're lying low and they're being quiet in Perea. Across the Jordan, two miles from Jerusalem, and that, that hotbed, that political morass for him, Something is happening in the home of his friends, his cousins, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Something's happening there. The Bible says that the brother, Lazarus, one who's described as the one whom Jesus loved, very close to him, he's dying. He's a young man and he's dying. Type 1 diabetes, ALS, cancer, we don't know what it was. We just know this is a young man facing an untimely death and... God only knows the level of palliative care that was afforded him, but it was a suffering, tough situation. Well, evidently, it, it went from bleak to worse, and Mary and Martha, knowing what was going on for Jesus, knew what was, what, what was, you know, what was at stake here. And Mary turns to a servant and says, I know, but I need you to go and I need you to tell him. I, just think about this moment. God, I, I need you to tell him that the one whom he loves is dying and he really needs to get here. And I can hear Martha, sis, and Mary says, hey, you were in the kitchen. I know him. I read the books. I did the catechism. I've gone through confirmation. I'm five generations deep in this thing. You were worried about flour and sugar and seasoning. I was at his feet. I know what he does. And I know what he'll do here. And I know what's at stake for him. And I know this man. I need you to go, and I need you to tell him. So the servant heads out, a day or two journey. The servant finds Jesus in this obscure hiding place, and he's sitting there with his disciples. And the servant comes in and, and, and says, it gives the spiel, my sisters sent you. Lazarus is dying, and they need you to come. And the servant at that point expects, you know, can I help you get your stuff together? And the Bible says that Jesus, when he heard that, he sat down. And it goes on, immediately it says, and he stayed there a few more days. But before he stayed there a few more days, he sat down and the servant looks at him, and the disciples look at him. I mean, the disciples don't want to go to Judea. They're scared for their own life. But this is a tough moment, and the servant looks at him and says, so, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going. And the servant says, but, but Mary said, Jesus said, 
tell them that this sickness will not end in death. The servant makes his way back, sands Jesus. And he comes into the home, and Martha's like, Mary, they're like, where, where is he? And the servant sheepishly stubs his toe and fiddles with the brim of his hat and says he, 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 um, he didn't come. And Mary says, he didn't. Did you tell him? And Mary says, did he say anything? And the servant said, well, okay, this is the only part of this that's redemptive. And, and he, said he's, he said he's not going to die. And Martha said, he said he's not going to die? So maybe this is one of those moments. They knew those moments where he doesn't even go. He just sends his word, right? I mean, there's ways of interpreting this. Martha says, I need you to remember. Mary says, I want you to think back. Did he really say he's not going to die? He said, well, he didn't say it exactly like that. And for all the people who say biblical interpretation is easy, it's not. And for all the people who say, but the red letters are, they aren't. Because Mary's like, tell me exactly what he said. And the servant says, okay, he said this sickness will not end in death. And Mary says, well, I don't know if that sounds like to you. That sounds like to me. And they go in and they whisper in this unconscious man's ear, it's going to be okay. You're not going to die. And Mary looks at Martha and says, I knew it. I know him. I spent so much time at his feet. I've invested my life at the feet of Jesus learning. I know him. And they Watch for the next two days as the breaths get farther and farther apart and the rattle and the rattle becomes a horror to their ears until it ceases and yields an even greater horror. And a brother dies. And, and if their brother dying wasn't enough, they had this whole other dying to deal with. Someone else was dying for them. His name was Jesus. Something else was dying for them. Their faith. Everything they thought they knew about life. Especially that that they had learned, this one named Jesus, at his feet. They bury their brother. Jesus doesn't even show up for the funeral. A couple of days pass. The Bible says Mary and Martha are sitting in their house. Little did they know, a day earlier, Jesus was sitting with his disciples, and he stood up, and he said, I want to go to Bethany, to where Lazarus is. The disciples say, Lord, he said, Lazarus is dead. Easy red letters, take this one. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. Interpret that. Interpret those red letters. 
Sounds like a book of Job almost. Who do you think you are? Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. The disciples, thinking about themselves and their own, you know, well-being, they said, well, if he's dead, why are we going to go and get killed too? You've missed your moment with him. Why subject us to that? Jesus said, red letters, Jesus said, well, he's not really dead, he's asleep. Begrudgingly, they head out. Mary and Martha's in the house. The servant busts in the house, and the servant says, he's here, he's, he's coming, I saw him. And they're like, who's coming? And the Bible says that the servant tells them, it's Jesus, he's on his way. Martha jumps up, look at this. Martha jumps up and heads to the door. I mean, just viscerally, she responds by heading to the door to see Jesus. As she's rushing out, she notices that she's alone because the Bible explicitly says when they heard that Jesus was coming, Martha rushed out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. And Martha at the door looks around and says, Sis, aren't you coming? I, I have been, the last 20 years of my life has been spending time with these people, being one of these people. Mary said, no, sis, I'm not coming. Martha says, but Mary. And now Mary's eyes brimming with tears, the grief of Lazarus, the grief of thinking that she knew Jesus only to be let down horribly. Mary, through these brimming tears, she looks at Martha through gritted teeth and says, I don't have anything, nothing to say to him. And Martha says, but sis, and Mary says, you do what you want to do. He has hurt me the last time. And I don't want to talk about it, and I don't want to see his face. He sat down on me. I'm sitting down on him. Anybody ever been there? Martha wisely leaves her sister to her process. Martha doesn't get sucked into Mary's process, but Martha doesn't force Mary into hers. Martha, the wise older sister, goes out to Jesus. She sees Jesus. And she literally says to him, Lord, if you would have been here, I mean, she has the pain too. We all handle it differently, right? Somebody say you have to walk a mile in their shoes. That, that's not enough. You'd have to walk every step they've ever taken. You'd have to have their feet, much less their shoes. Nobody can do another person's experience. I can't process your, your deconstruction for you, and you can't for me. Martha goes out to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus then goes into this long theological discourse that theologians reflectively call realized eschatology and say the only reason this story is in the book of John and not in the earlier gospels is because John was written much later after a couple of generations of Christians had died who thought Jesus was going to come back before they died 
So there's this whole exchange. It's not just from this story. It's theological for a church that was suffering at the beginning of the first century, wondering where Jesus was. And Jesus says to Martha this cryptic stuff that we're still trying to unpack. Anybody that believes in me, even if they die, they really don't die. And, and the resurrection is already here. And, and Martha looks at him and essentially says, works for me. Martha's struggles and deconstructions were worked out in complex theology, verbally stated. Book clubs, Bible studies, I mean, it worked for her. Martha said, I, I don't get it, but I trust you, and it's enough. And then the beautiful part of the story. It doesn't end there. The Bible says that Jesus says to Martha, where's Mary? And this, it, it could be made into a movie. Martha takes a deep breath and she looks at Jesus and Jesus said, she knows I'm here. Where is she? She's in the house. I was with her. So she just sat down and didn't. Martha says she's pretty hurt. I grew up with Job's God. I grew up the church that I grew up in, and I'm no victim. They were lovely people. We were doing our best with the information we had. But I grew up with the God who would have stormed in that room and said, who do you think you are? Where were you? I know you've lost 10 kids and everything you have, but where were you when I made the Pleiades and the constellations? Who do you think you are? Questioning me? You didn't make the hippopotamus and the rhinoceros. I did. I mean, who says that? If that's who God is, that's our worst nightmare. If that's who God is, quit trying. But the God we see in the face of Jesus wasn't the God that Job experienced who busts up into the sorrow and says, you get out of that chair and you get out of my feet. You don't have to understand. You got to trust. We don't have in this story the God of Job. We have the God that Job longed for. That's so much the point of the Job story. There's this little inauspicious part where Job literally looks up wistfully in his pain as God is excoriating him. And Job said, I just wish I had a man who is fit to mediate between you and me because I can't hear you and I don't think you can hear me. And ripples went through the universe as God hears those words from Job, which are the centerpiece of the book of Job. Oh, that there was a man. Oh, that there was a God-man. Oh, that there was somebody who could be a daysman between us because we are not. I know you're too big for me to talk back to, 
but I must be too small for you to hear. Maybe you're so big that losing children doesn't matter to you after you've done your best to serve that invisible creator in the sky. And he puts his hand over his mouth and says, I'm foolish, but I wish I had somebody that could stand between. And God's heart breaks and God says he's ahead of his time. Because there would be a man who would disrobe from the chain mail of the divine, who would hook up the central nervous system of the divine to a human and feel our suffering. And that is the God that we see in this story. Because Jesus stands on the porch and he doesn't walk through the door forcefully. He looks at Martha and says, okay. Would you go tell her that I want to talk to her? No. She didn't need to talk to. Would you tell her I want to see her? Martha goes back in the house. Jesus standing gently, decently at the periphery of Mary's experience. A midwife who stands knowing this is her experience and even the divine can't force this experience. He stands at the periphery, leaving her with her dignity and her pain. And he stands on the porch. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Job's God kicked doors down. But the God we see in the face of Jesus Christ stands on the door And waits as Martha goes in. And there she is. Martha doesn't say, Sis, before you make a final assessment, this is what he said about the resurrection. He said, It's not just a future event, but it's here even now. For... I'm telling you, I, I am a crybaby, but this one gets me. I have such a low dew point for this because this, God, the church has got to get this. We have lived this. That's why most of you are here because you've lived through this. You know exactly, you could, you could finish this message for me. Martha goes to Mary, gets down beside her. Only a big sister could. She takes her hand, holds it to her mouth. And she said, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you to give him a chance. If I have one ordination in my life this, these days, it is the role of Martha. I was in West Hollywood Four weeks ago, laying to rest, a 44-year-old, one more 44-year-old gay young man from the denomination I grew up in, who was our best organist, was the, just a beautiful soul. He could never get over his parents, who are ministers in my denomination. He could never get over their rejection. 
and he just drank himself to death. And whether it was passive or active suicide, he finally lost his battle. And he was a beautiful soul. And I was there as a hundred queer people from my denomination who hadn't been in church in 20 years came from Milan and Hollywood and Chicago and Topeka and Sri Lanka. They came there. And I was with a hundred queer Christian alumni who long ago gave up on Jesus, buried not only their Lazaruses, but buried their faith and everything. And I was with, I felt, it was a holy weekend. I felt like Martha that weekend, just quietly saying, you don't have to. And maybe I'm a fool. Maybe I'm asking you to set yourself for up for more abuse, and I don't mean to do that, but I don't think so. I think there's a difference between what's been done to you and who God is. Would you, would you, he just wants to see you. And I watched these middle-aged people so estranged that weekend in the, in the funeral for Jonathan Noble. I watched them, I watched them crack the door of their heart again. Martha whispers, he just wants to see you. And the Bible says, Mary got up and she went out of the room. She gave. She went out of the room. And when she saw Jesus, guess what the Bible says she did? She fell at the feet of Jesus. Three times she's in the story. All three times she's at the feet of Jesus. The first time learning, the last time worshiping, but the middle time that we don't talk enough about. But places like Austin New Church have given themselves to. The middle time, she fell at the feet of Jesus and she didn't look at him and say, tell me more. And she didn't look at him and say, I adore you. She looked at him and says, who do you think you are? Where the hell were you? Everything that you told me with the air condition on and the climate right, everything you told me, I knew you. You loved him. You heal people you don't even know for crying out loud. He opened his home and his heart to you. you. You in your book talked about angels that would encamp around those who steps being ordered. You poured salt in our wombs by even saying that his sickness wouldn't end in death. What were you talking about? Don't say anything if you're going to say a bunch of BS like that. Anybody ever been there? You know there are more former Christians in this world than there are Christians. And you know they're not a bunch of recalcitrant reprobates who've thrown the thing away. They're like my brother who when I was 16 and matriculating into ministry, he didn't buy any of it and he quietly walked away. 
I got all the attention. And I think the last 30 years, his rejection of that Jesus has been almost more of a defense of the real Jesus than maybe even my 30 years of ministry have been. Mary looks at him and says, finally she says, if you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. The exact words Martha said. Just because they're deconstructing and both saying the same words doesn't mean the experience is the same or the need is the same. Jesus doesn't look at her after hearing that invitation. Jesus doesn't look at her and say, well, as I was telling Martha, he looks at her, picks her up, and the Bible says he looked at her and said, where is he? No fight. Know who do you think you are? I think that's what she was trying to do. Pick a fight with him, you know. But he wouldn't buy or bite. She looks up at him. And instead of the fight, he whispers, where is he? She says, what do you mean, where is he? He's dead. No. Where did you bury him? What the hell does it matter to you? He said, I'd like to go see, I'd like to go see where he's buried. Quietly, no verbal exchange of theology, but plenty of theology happening. They walk, they get to the tomb, and Mary is ready to say, happy! But before she can, she turns to excoriate him now. And as she turns, the Bible said before she could open her mouth, the smallest verse, not ironically, the smallest verse in the Bible is the largest theological statement in the entire book. As she turns, Jesus wept. And instead of cursing him again, she turns back to the tomb. And he cries and cries and cries and cries. Until she buries her head on his shoulder. And the tears of God mingle with the tears of Every one of the Pentecostal people I grew up with who just knew if we prayed hard enough, our three-year-olds wouldn't die of leukemia and our 17-year-olds wouldn't get hit by drunk drivers and our kids would come home from Vietnam. And, and over and over and over again, thought what we learned about faith and prayer and Jesus, it was just devastated. And we were either left, well, there is no God or that God is an SOB or we're just a failed person. And we could not do without God, so we just did self-harm and said, we're bad. We don't pray hard enough. We didn't. If it wasn't enough that these people would lose their eight-year-olds and, and battle their 
sicknesses. They had to be trying to defend this harsh God. And, and the two of them weep together. And this is what I want to say. And, and I, I wanted to say it to you. There's so much more here. I'll do part two of this the next time. But I just wanted to say to A and C. All I do now is I wake up in the morning. I work with LGBTQ kids, people, their families, all around the issue of deconstruction because these are hurting people. They can't go back to their little Nazarene church. They can't go back to their little Assembly of God church. They don't live in Austin. They're not in Nashville. They live in small towns in South Dakota and Delaware and New Hampshire, and they don't have uh, an inclusive church. And I, I do that all day long. And on the weekends, I go to these churches like ANC. And I just want to tell you, coming out of the pandemic, and we're all with bated breath wondering, are we going to get back to where we were? Is there a new reality? Are people coming back? Is this stuff going to exist? It has to. You, of all the ministries you have, I just want to tell you, this isn't the only one, but one of the major ministries of ANC is the anointing of Martha. It is to create a space for people scattered all over this city, just like the Uber driver who drove me from the airport the other day, non-religious a million miles until 40 minutes into the conversation, and his eyes gets misty, and he begins to talk about Catholic guilt. And This church has, the, and I'm not saying everybody has to be merry and come back, but I'm saying there are plenty of Marys that if we will not just force them from at his feet learning to at his feet worshiping and act like that's all there is to Christianity. But if we will recognize the sacred, holy, ordained space in between those places, a space, as old Merle Haggard said, looking for a place to fall apart. There is room at the feet of Jesus to fall apart with questions galore. And there are a lot of churches in this town. God bless them. They are teaching people everything about Jesus. And you can take the test, get, or, get catechized and baptized, and you're in, and you never question it. But it's not working, and Christianity is getting smaller, and people like my brother are leaving. And there are plenty of Marys that have responded to Job's God, and they're not coming back. But there is another... God in the face of Jesus Christ who is asking to be seen and A and C is a place where people can fall apart in a holy protected way and I'm just telling you there are thousands tens of thousands of them running around this city and they are hurting and I think Jesus deserves another chance can you say amen let's pray Lord Thank you for this place, the beauty of this place. And I, I even um, just rest in the awareness that there are not only Marthas here, but there are Marys, maybe one or two, three or four, maybe a dozen Marys in this place that have buried so much, even you. Might they experience the tender tears of God, the tender tears of God 
in the face of the body of Christ? Might they mingle their heartbreak with the heartbreak of the divine? And might they be coached back to a place? Gently back to a place. It is so interesting. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he was sitting at the table. Mary was the real healing in John 11. And for that reason, she wasn't at the table. She was at his feet. I pray today that you will do the work of healing until we might comfortably come to that place of second naivete and reorientation. Until instead of heartbreak and bitterness flowing, it could be the perfume of worship. I pray that you would do that today in the hearts of all of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said amen.